You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst neighborhood dogs' incessant barking, sleepless nights, and the shifting state of our world. This is the 10th of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we will be discussing Chapter 16, Transformation and Contemplation. In this conversation, we explore the role of contemplation in rewiring us to be able to perceive and live from the universal Christ. One more thing before we get started. Bree and I are having a blast being in conversation with Richard, and we would love to hear what questions are arising for you as you listen to this podcast or read the book. So if you have a burning question related to the themes of the universal Christ that just won't leave you alone, head over to cac.org podcast and follow the instructions there to submit your question. After this season is over, we'll sift through the submissions, pour a glass of something tasty, ask Richard your questions, and then share his responses with all of you. Richard, today we wanted to talk about um, chapter 16, Transformation and Contemplation. Okay. We're going to get right into the good (laughs) stuff now. Good. And you start this chapter talking about the fact um, that the idea of a cosmic or universal Christ is really challenging for us because we're operating with the wrong software. Uh, to put it one way, sure. How how would you describe our normal operating system and and how contemplation can help update mm. our software? Let's come at it uh, with this angle: that the normal way the self enclosed person sees reality is me and not me, uh, and you can understand how a child is going to start that way. Uh, But what life is meant to do is to little by little dissolve those boundaries. That's the whole meaning of love. If you you don't do that, everything's me and not me. Uh, There's really no mind to understand this unitive Christ concept, which is a we concept, a participatory concept. So without major transformation conversion which is to overcome your separateness uh, I don't think the mind the western mind the eastern mind for that matter is at all prepared to understand the Christ because what it is is a moving from I to we radical we <laughs> that the ontological truth is connection <laughs> The psychological construct is self, is separate self. So yeah, until those boundaries of self have begun to dissolve, we are not prepared to understand the notion of Christ. It's just a theoretical, uh, theological idea. Mm. 
And Richard, the, the word contemplation is going to come up a lot, I imagine, in this conversation. How, good. how do you define that word so that all those listening can have a kind of a, a base level understanding or starting point? You know, well, let's try this time just the, the word itself. In its Latin roots, means to gaze at something, and sometimes we still use the word contemplate. I contemplated that, but a gazing until uh, you see the dignity of a thing, the soul of a thing, the, in a certain sense, the equality of a thing, that it's part of the great chain of being, just as much as I am. So again, we're talking about dissolving of boundaries, which can only happen gradually. And why it doesn't happen so often, let's say in your teens and 20s, and God certainly understands this, is you are trying so feverishly in your early years to create some skin, you know, to create some self, uh, what I call the first half of life. So unless there's been suffering or great love that has begun to dissolve those boundaries, most people in their teens and 20s just aren't naturally contemplative. They can't be. They, they're still asserting, and they have to, their identity, their selfhood, their dignity, their importance. I mean, I certainly did that. I went off to a seminarian put on a robe and became a priest and a Franciscan. That was all okay, but now I look back on it, it was grasping for a persona. And this was one that seemed good. Yeah. We all do that and God loves that. So, uh, but your question was, how would I describe contemplation? When you, you stop uh, seeing things in what I call the subject-object split, and you begin to read reality subject to subject, center to center, dignity to dignity, uh, that's a different way of seeing. It's, it's what we called yesterday the, the um, I-thou mm -hmm. instead of the I-it. My next question kind of pulls with that contemplation of how has contemplation helped you expand uh, the notion and relationship with Jesus and the Christ? Well, what I think I experienced in my early God experiences, which were not always precisely Jesus, and I certainly wouldn't have had the notion of Christ I have now as a young man, but what I felt was that subject to subject, center to center relationship being initiated from the other side. You know, someone is loving me. Someone is allowing me. Someone is choosing me. Now the name I gave that someone was God. Uh, now I, I could also call it Jesus or Christ, but I don't need to, you understand, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was again a dissolving of, or a lessening. Let's not call it a dissolving of boundaries because you always have boundaries or there isn't an I thou. <laughs> it still has to be an I here or a thou there. Uh, so as I would allow that to be dissolved in me, 
That's what mercy and forgiveness and compassion does. When you experience God's mercy towards you, you realize he is not holding me to my self-defining mistakes or my self-defining stupidities. He is dissolving them. He, she is dissolving them. Of course, it's not a he at that point. Uh, yeah, that's all that comes right now. Okay. Beatrice Bruteau talks about how the self is actually defined not by uh, a sense of a noun of what it uh, possesses oh, uh-huh. or or That's what it good. what mm-hmm. it has, but rather by its relationships. <clears throat> and what what I'm thinking about as you're saying this is that in a way the contemplative mind helps us see a web of relationality. Yes. Instead Excellent. of focusing Excellent. on just the part mm. which we get so stuck on normally. Yeah. And and God must understand this because you know, this is your audio receiver station, and so how I feel this morning naturally dominates the field. How can it not? What I'm thinking this morning is your beginning place. So what you're doing in contemplation is lessening that reference point, lessening that... uh, uh, perspective uh, by by allowing the self to expand where, where you, again I'm repeating myself but where you see reality through a radical connectedness it's not just relationship but it's the quality of mm. your relationship mm. the 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 trustfulness of it the the uh, uh, warmth of it, the uh, the trust of it. Uh, so, you know, I think a lot of people have had a relationship with God, but you find out when you do spiritual direction, the God they had relationship with was toxic, mm-hmm. was a torturer, was, it was all fear-based. So you can't just say relationship, you have to say the quality of relationship. <clears throat> Now that, of course, brings me theologically back to the Trinity, that the quality of the relationship between the three is one of infinite self-emptying and infinite outpouring. If that's the template of reality, uh, then all we can do is try to imitate that. Mm-hmm. Try. We never uh, succeed, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you say that a marker of a contemplative life is the outflow of that kind of Trinitarian um, creativity, uh, generativity from love, not just for the sake of, you know, creating, but rather for the sake yeah, of giving, 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 giving oneself. That's good, that's good. You know, the, the corrective that we oft have to insert and we're not trained to, as long as that self-giving is accompanied by self-emptying, Mm-hmm. So, not that you were saying that, but if it's all about my career, my creativity, my right. that's right. all outpouring. So you could assume that it's uh, divine, but it's only divine if, when 
you aren't getting anything out of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Money or mm-hmm. fame or admiration. And you still give. will give for the sake of uh, somebody else or some other cause. So um, you see why I get so excited about the notion of Trinity. Yeah. And this is appropriately said on St. Valentine's Day. <laughs> because uh, our notion of love is all about being outpoured toward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no accompanying notion of self-emptying. And I use the word self-emptying instead of sacrifice because the word sacrifice has been so polluted mm-hmm. uh, to just be another way to be egoic. I'm sacrificial. <laughs> so that doesn't work. So it has to be self-emptying. It, heroic sacrifice is very dangerous because it's usually still all about you. Not all, but mostly, mostly mm-hmm. about you. That's why Jesus said, go learn the meaning of the words. What I want is mercy, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, he quotes that several places. This, this rather obscure passage in Hosea. I think that's very significant because he was coming from a sacrificially based religion, as we do too, of course, same way. This brings to mind, Richard, the first question I asked you in our first episode, where I asked you, how do you explain Christ to a child? Mm. And um, as you're talking about self-emptying and and, um, self-giving, what comes to me now is I realize that my intention with that question, although I didn't realize it until I read a passage later on in the book, mm-hmm. was that how do I, I want to pass on this transformative nature of Christ. And then I read this. I want to just tell you, then I want to ask you a question after this. Okay, this is, go ahead. Um, from this chapter. We can begin to understand that the Christ mystery is not something we need to prove or even can prove, but a broad field that we can recognize for ourselves when we see in a contemplative way. Yes which often we see more symbolic and intuitive than merely rational. Yeah. And I think what took that breath away from, from me when I read that was that I want my kids to be Christians in this way, but like, I no longer need to have that be the label they wear. Mm. Is that yes. ringing true for how we can pass this on by just kind of uh, helping our, the next generation see the field, uh, the Christ mystery field, but not always... Um, having to force it into the box of, of naming it in religious categories. I hear you, and it's a question a parent wants to ask. Again, it has to be a both-and answer. Don't be so eager to make sure they're into the universal Christ that you don't give them a gateway. Uh, I, in one place in the book, I call Jesus like a shortcut on your your computer screen. Mm. I'm not saying he he is the only way, but he is a good, really good shortcut. (laughs) If you have a proper understanding of Jesus, Mm. he's a very good shortcut. So know that a small child cannot easily think conceptually universally. It's the scandal of the particular. We start with the concrete, we move to the universal normally. And it's the same way in pedagogy. A little child uh, most easily, I'm not saying only, but most easily probably needs to look upon a Jesus figure 
or some other Hindu figure, I don't care, but something that communicates outpouring love for them, mm -hmm. that pulls them into a world of safety and, and security and dignity. I think we got to keep saying dignity because what we saw in uh, the way so many of us were raised is this God didn't really give us dignity. He, he she was always taking, well, it was he then, was always taking it away. You're a sinner. You're in inadequate. You're unworthy. That's no small point. When your God is not giving you dignity, <laughs> well, then you it's no surprise we grew up taking away other people's dignity. <laughs> right. Uh, because God did. A good preacher uh, gave a fire and brimstone sermon, and that's what Christians even came to expect, to be reminded on Sunday morning of their sinfulness. Talk about a negative agenda, mm. you see. And their powerlessness. Like, yeah, yeah. There's a lack of agency, Very of good. participation. Very good. Or, yes, yes. Yeah. So... Um, Am I answering your no, question? you are. I think okay. what, what I hear you saying is that we need to, one, ground the genera next generation in the image and likeness of God. Yes. Just that that is a given, that the image is given and that the likeness um, is the path. And that uh, the gateway is often needs to be so personal yeah. to the cosmic that it can't be. Where the heart current. and soul space isn't open. Yeah. You know, it's like what your first girlfriend or first boyfriend does for you. It opens up a space inside of you that you didn't know was there. Yeah. Mm. And that's why a loving God image does the same thing. Mm. Opens up a huge space inside of you that is so huge. Of course, you don't know this at first, but it, it has the power to include everything else. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things we struggle with, though, Paul, and I don't know if you feel this way, as parents is that um, so much of how that particular personhood of Jesus is packaged is so negative, you know, and it's unhealthy. There's an unhealthy relationship to culture, to context, that we've sort of interpreted Jesus in such a different way than even, you know, he likely was in his own life. And so one of the things that I find myself doing or trying is um you know for my for my own life stories and and uh literature played a huge role in actually creating mm. a better picture of anthropology than the scriptures did a better yeah. image for what the human journey can look like you know, I think of Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and George mm. MacDonald, and now I'm, you know, I'm deep in Harry Potter land right now with <laughs> the kids. And, and it's so, you know, there's, there's beautiful uh, symbolism in it. Yes, yes. And so I think... If you're ready to see it. Right. Yeah. What I appreciate about what you're saying is that um, the personal has a place, and giving yep, our yep, kids yep. an actual story of personal stories, of, <sighs> of lives lived in the service of something greater, like Jesus did, mm -hmm. is is part of creating that that um, neuro pathway, I guess, to put it one way, toward the cosmic. But that we don't need to expect, or maybe we can't expect to be able to like engender the cosmic in everything right now. 
That's you know, I wonder if your the parents' actions, behavior, mm. doesn't communicate the Christ part. Huh. You don't have to do it verbally, but when they see that you don't put down black people, that you don't make fun of gay people, that you don't eliminate other Christians, they're getting the meaning of Jesus in a universal sense. Mm. You don't have to give it to them doctrinally. Right. They're going to watch your behavior. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said. And, mm. You know, I've been saying lately, because someone who's been training us here in management and organization, I don't know if the quote is exact, maybe you can correct it. Uh, when culture meets religion, culture wins every time. Mm. Is that the, that's close to the quote, yeah. isn't mm. it? Yeah. I don't think we knew how true that was, you know? Mm. That again and again, it wasn't the gospel, is the way we had already framed reality. You know, when I talk in the book about Carl Jung being very disappointed in his father and his five, five pastor uncles. <laughs> and he looked at all of them and saw sour, unhappy human beings, very, very disciplinarian-like policemen more than pastors, uh, culture had won. <laughs> I am not anti-Swiss. I taught in Switzerland many times, but you can definitely see it's a culture where law and order and discipline and probably historically very strong punitive patterns of child rearing were the order of the day. Now, if that's the frame, Peace is achieved in our house by daddy whipping us. <laughs> Peace is achieved in our house by mother yelling at us. Do you see how, if that's your emotional frame, you transfer all of that to church hmm. and you even expect that. I'm not trying to be anti the reformed tradition, but I remember when I was in Geneva going to the church where... Um, John Calvin used to, after in his older years, he would attend. Mm. And his chair was still there in the sanctuary next to whoever the preacher was. He wasn't the preacher anymore. But he would sit there with this whip. The whip had to be 10 feet tall. I can't believe it. And if anybody fell asleep in the church, oh my gosh. It's still there. It's still there. <laughs> oh my God. It's just. And I'm not putting Calvin down, but it's all moral behavior. Mm -hmm. It's not grace. It's not compassion. Because God, you know, I mean, the substitutionary penal, penal, punitive, substitutionary atonement theory, okay, the word, I'm told, came from that tradition. Mm. Not They did many good things. Please don't hear me trying to be oppositional. But like the Catholic Church itself, they did many bad things too. Mm. And what history is forcing on us is to own that both-and character of almost everything. Yeah, and mm. Young, I mean, since you invoked his name, I'm just thinking of how he kind of overcame even uh, being able to see the the path of descent or the, the resurrection journey as the map, right? As the Jung, mythic, did. Jung did. Yes. Yeah. And yes. so what I hear you saying too is if we can give children that map through Jesus, map. then they get, they, 
later on in life see that that map actually applies to everywhere everything there you go yeah. that's very good I just want Thank to close you. that loop as a yeah well, that's closing the loop <laughs> parents everywhere are dying <laughs> just like what do we do for um, some reason <laughs> this idea of a map makes sense to people as a replacement for uh, the automaton savior mm. who, <laughs> uh, who will uh, take us to heaven yeah. That's I mean, what's falling apart. It just doesn't make sense. That's you know? right. And it's it's helpful yeah. because that's how you frame Christ as this pattern of all reality. One pattern, yeah. So then we can see it everywhere and we can experience it everywhere. But I, I'm realizing that um, as you're describing this kind of transactionalism in in religion and in the Christian religion, how much a product of our binary yes. minds that is yes. and how inadequate that kind of transactional mentality is to deal with mysteries such as love and suffering. And I want to read this line where you say, um, the binary mind, good for rational thinking, finds itself totally out of its league in dealing with things like love, death, suffering, infinity, God, sexuality, or mystery in general. And you often say that our gateways to transformation are great love and great suffering. And is it is that because those experience sh- experiences short circuit that tendency to try to turn everything into a binary transaction? Yeah. I'm going to quote you on that. I I love sh- your use of the term short circuit because that's exactly what they do when you're in the middle of great love, great suffering. The binary mind isn't helpful isn't useful, isn't, it's like regressing. Uh, so, but the, the trouble is, as you've heard me say, that wonderful temporary unitive consciousness that you don't even know you're enjoying temporarily. You're just enjoying it, but you don't stand back enough to know I'm thinking unitively right now. Huh? Uh, it usually cannot be maintained. In fact, I'm going to say it never can be maintained. Mm -hmm. You will always slip back the next morning into the first thing that irritates you or your old resentments toward this person or whatever it might be. No, that's very well said. So if I don't say it that way, and that's not the only reason I'm saying it, but we don't have a natural religion that was available to the Stone Age people, to the Mayans, to the Celts, to the Babylonians. Uh, But great love and great suffering were available to all human beings, maybe in a rudimentary way uh, by a Stone Age person. I don't know what their level of consciousness was, but they're seeking to take care of their little babies, you know? Mm They're sticking together with one another through tremendous hardship. That was their path to God. And suddenly, you know, it's one coherent universe. We're still, you know, millennia later trying to learn how to do great love and great suffering. Mm. And I would say it goes so far as to say those are the only real messages religion has, how to do love and death or suffering, When we're not talking about those two, we're not talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it again, I, I'm afraid we're over, I'm overusing the terms, but it removes us from automatic heavenly transactions that we're supposed to believe. <laughs> 
to a path where we really change at a cellular level, at a, at a mental level. We, we process reality differently. Uh, if we can maintain what we momentarily experienced in great love and great suffering. Mm -hmm. And that, as you know, is the only function of practices. Uh, if we don't say that, then, dang it, practices become another technique, <laughs> an end in themselves. Do you understand? Right. Uh, right. Did you? I remember when I went to a Japanese Zen monastery, the moment I sat down, the abbot leaned forward, and what is your practice? And I'm not trying to put him down, but I talk about in the book how different that is from a Catholic monastery where the monk says, did they serve you lunch? <laughs> <laughs> so we all have our limits, I guess, but I just want to say that so we who teach contemplation don't make our preferred little method and we Catholics did this with attending Mass every day. And it's made saints of many Catholics. But it's also become a, a catatonic repetition of words and formulas that precisely keep people at a lower level of love. Huh? Mm. It's just to keep reasserting how holy they are. Mm. <laughs> it's still all about them, as we say. And that's the danger of any transaction. You used the wonderful word before, agency. I'm still the agent. <laughs> and I'm choosing to go to Mass to prove to God my worthiness, which mm -hmm. you already had before you went to Mass. Sure. You see? <laughs> but one of the things that I appreciate about what you're saying is that if we do, you know, so we have these kind of peak experiences of great love or great suffering. And feel that kind of like the veil parts we feel the interconnectedness of 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 love and all things and yet you're saying that the goal of practice then is to habituate ourselves to that perfect to, to help re rewire mm -hmm. us to that reality um without turning the practice into the new thing <coughs> that's right that we're that's overly we're worshiping but i think it's helpful and I guess this is a question that I have is, you know, discipline is important. Yep. It, there is take a place there, for that. Take me there. Go so, ahead. so what is the relationship between, um, what's the right relationship between practice and discipline? Because I find that a lot of us, especially in the millennial generation, we want the goods without the work. <laughs> yeah. Resist the discipline. Yeah. We want the That's consciousness without the time and yeah. the practice and the discipline and the years of commitment to get us there. Yeah. You know, I just gave this retreat uh, for a whole bunch of Franciscans uh, who are forming our new one national province. And there was a beautiful uh, nature-based chapel on the grounds of the retreat house where you could look out through the big glass windows at the trees. And several times in the middle of the day when I'd go over there for several different reasons, I would see one or the other of the old friars just sitting in that chapel. And I knew they were beneficiaries of years of discipline, you know. I just sat, just sitting there, you know. I don't know, I didn't check out how long they stayed there. But I know there are uh, friars who, who, their opinion is without a, one full hour a day of prayer, you can't live 
the Christian life in any depth. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, now we've lessened it to 20 minutes in our <laughs> sit, you know. But isn't that beautiful that yeah. that uh, there were enough? And when I first joined the Franciscans, a novice in 1961, we had to be in the chapel. I guess it was six o'clock, and the first half hour. We had to spend on our knees. The chapel was still largely dark in total silence. Now the trouble is, no one was teaching us how to, what to do with our mind. Mm-hmm. Just kneel in the dark and silence. Well, the wonderful thing is, many good things happened. That it did for me during that very period. Uh, I don't think it did for everybody, though. For many, it became an obedience. Mm-hmm not a uh, an inner experience something they had to do did i answer your question what did you say yeah no. just the relationship <laughs> no you're getting there the relationship what's a healthy relationship to discipline oh to discipline yeah we almost want to just throw yeah. that away but i i feel yeah. that the monastic traditions gave us such a gave model us, yeah, of, a there is model a role for it. That, there is a place for it. So maybe it's just important that we say that yeah. and that you say it as a millennial <laughs> to recognize it isn't the virtue of most younger people, to be honest. Like if it wasn't forced on me at 19 mm-hmm. for a whole year, I wouldn't have ever had that, but I had to be there. Mm-hmm. I would have get whipped. No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I would have been disciplined. Richard, you weren't. Well, my, you know what my name was then? What? Alexander. Mm-hmm. Alexander, mm-hmm. you weren't at prayer this morning, you know. Um, we used to be given new names. The day we'd received the robe, you're kneeling there. It was middle of August, terribly hot. We had to wear these black suits. We'd come in and... The, and he says, henceforth you will be named. And you're just, oh, God, I hope I don't get a crazy day. This is like the sorting hat in, in Hogwarts for, for, for those that are as deep into Harry Potter land as I am, where the, the hat decides what house you go into. Oh, yeah. God, that's wonderful that's connection. But uh, you'll be known as Friar Alexander. Oh, my God. I guess that's okay. Do I like it? <laughs> so, so I'm going up and they, I take my uh, clothes off and they put my robe over me and it's so exciting, terribly hot. Uh, but there was a discipline in that world mm. that has served me well for the rest of my life where you internalize the discipline. Now I wouldn't be tied to the formulas of doing it the first thing in the morning or being on my knees or mm-hmm. being a full half hour. Uh, but, yeah, and that's the real goal, for virtues to be internalized. Mm. So you don't need the external coercion or the social pressure, but you just internally recognize, no, I need to um, ask this, this of myself or give myself mm. in this way. So thanks for bringing it up. It keeps yeah. us honest, it sounds like. It, it keeps us in an honest relationship where the inner matches the outer. Oh, very good. Yeah, nice. You know, I think of old older values like building character. Like mm-hmm. how much do we really talk about that now? And yet I feel like character, discipline, the fruits of the spirit, these are all things that kind of flow together. I, I, I thank you for answering that question. The relationship to discipline for me um, I can tip into a perfectionism where I'm like, oh, yes, look how good yes, I am. I did my, yes. I did my double the, 20 the minutes. The ego <laughs> will do that with it even right. when you don't want it to. Sure. Yeah. 
but that kind of humility of honesty is yeah is a different Just, it feels like a helpful way to I'm becoming sort of soft and flabby I need to pull myself a little together mm. yeah yeah and that isn't said in a judgmental way to the self, just a, a growing way. I want to be all I can be for the sake of the world, for the sake of God. Mm. Yeah. And part of what you're, you're saying with that discipline is uh, it frees you from the rigidity of it, but it also grounded mm. you in, in something to return to. Um, and I think about how you say in the book that I'm still in the theme of great love and great suffering. As those great teachers that we are able to go to the depths of spiritual things. And then yes. practice, you name as kind of this daily bread that we must kind of return to. And there's a, yes. there's a discipline aspect of that. Mm. How has that daily bread helped sustain you during those seasons of great suffering? Just to put a little kind of flesh on this conversation, um, if anything comes to mind. This is going to sound like such a stock answer. But even this morning, I just thank God for how lucky I am to have been given this one reference point, this one center. And I, I said, how do people live without you? Mm. Uh, I really, not in a patronizing way, but found myself feeling sorry for the millions of people who must be waking up this morning with no ultimate purpose for the day. Mm. Now maybe I was overtaught ultimate purpose but when I see the vacillating, whimsical uh, personality we've created in Western civilization, where there really does seem to be no ground and no center and no goal. <laughs> That's what philosophically we call nihilism. Nihil is the Latin word for nothing, nothingness. Uh, and I'm not trying to put such people down. I really say that with great sympathy. How do you wake up e each day and create a meaning and a purpose and a goal for yourself by yourself? What else can you go toward except money and success and power? I, mm. I would too. <laughs> There's nothing else to get me through the day except getting a raise, you know having a sexual encounter are, are being important, mm -hmm. you know. So, uh, you can see why all religious traditions call those passions that they don't upset God, they just keep you from God <laughs> because they're false gods. And so if you worship them, you don't have the true center. You have a false center that is, will not really satisfy will not really feed the soul, or the body, for that matter. You talk about, in your book, the fact that reality isn't what changes. In other words, that the core of what is really there is has always really, really been there. But rather, how we perceive what is real, and you use the word epistemology. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the changes then, and I know we're kind of, we're circling around this, but what are some of the changes in our perception uh, when, when we are looking through that Christ lens or that contemplative mind? What do we see? The, 
the self in a certain real sense doesn't die, it disappears. And what I mean by disappears, it's still there, but it doesn't frame the moment, you know. And so you can see things in themselves, as themselves, for themselves, and by themselves, in their inherent goodness. And you're free enough from weighing your own goodness to genuinely enjoy, enjoy is the word I want to use, the, the inherent goodness of really almost anything, a twig. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you contemplate it, which means to look at it until you can appreciate it, you gaze at it until it becomes beautiful, you, you look at it until it shows its inherent worthiness, apart from that it's going to make me money or, or you know, allow me firewood for tonight. Or, uh, all of those might be okay. But the contemplative mind moves beyond that. And so you see how this destroys all attempts to manipulate reality. Um, it's been disappointing me over the years, I guess because I became fairly well known at one point, that there were a number of people who entered my life, and only years later did I grossly discover that I was being used for their own personal advancement. You know? Oh, that was like a knife in the heart, you know. Uh, but I, I don't hate them for it, but I just realized that was their whole approach to life. It's, mm -hmm. We call it opportunism. Huh? Everything is opportunistic. Huh? Even friendship, even uh, relationship is, well, to get close to Richard Rohr is, uh, they thought, it really isn't, but is going to get me somewhere. Uh, we almost all have to be purified of that manipulative, opportunistic level of motivation, which we all start with. But I'm just amazed how it maintains itself in our culture. Yeah. That, you know, that, that we could have a president, excuse me, who, who seems to know no worldview beyond winning. He turns everything back, everything, and I'm not exaggerating, to winning or losing. Mm -hmm. that, that's the hell uh, of the self as an absolute reference point. Mm -hmm. There is no other meaning than winning or losing. And that isn't even an exaggeration. Mm -hmm. And he surrounded his entire office with similar people. It's like a whole worldview of, oh. of I, it, right? That That's subject, right. object. Excellent. Everyone right. is objectified. Yeah. That's why they're all betraying one another right. and stabbing one another in the back. Uh, that's why you almost have to feel sorry for these rigid personalities. I see it in new uh, reforms in Christianity. If it's a real rigid, dualistic founder, you wait one generation and they'll be eating one another alive. <laughs> uh, that it's no reform, it's no renewal. You start with a dualistic revolution or reform, 
and just give it five years, and it's the same damn thing. I use the word intentionally all over. I, mean, I was in Nicaragua in 1985 in the middle of the Sandinista revolution, and I was in the front row with Peter, Paul, and Mary, and <laughs> we were, well, I was singing for the, I wasn't joining them on stage, but obviously, <laughs> Richard, <laughs> but, uh, even while we were there, we were beginning to see, and I had the Sandinistas in my naive, on a, a huge pedestal of this is reform. And even as I got to meet several of the inner circle, uh, junta, they call it, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, Several of them were very disillusioning to me. They said, this is not going to be a long-term reform. You know? One took me out to his beautiful art-covered mansion on the edge of Managua. And he's talking about the poor. And he is already living, you know, top of the pile. I'm just, I guess, rambling. But no, you, if you, you don't have a real change of consciousness, you normally repeat in a different mask the same thing you came to reform. Oh. It's just, it can't, why don't we see that at this point in history? And as you know, that's why I can't give up on religion because it still keeps pointing to radical reform, not just being a leftist, not just being a revolutionary, a socialist, or... It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you're, you're naming uh, the almost inability for the contemplative mind to be power grabbing, right? Because it it, it doesn't see it sees uh, that there's a bigger picture beyond that. Yeah. And this, when you talked about in your book about uh, the sordid past of Christianity and all yeah. the trauma it's created, but yet your ability to stay within the church mm -hmm. and um, work towards reconciliation, integration, and forgiveness. How has the contemplative mind allowed you or created the space for you to accept the history of Christianity um, and still have a foot inside of it? You know, that's only worked for me in my fully adult years. What held me in in my early years was that I was lucky enough, as I think you also were, to have an original, youthful, very positive experience of Catholicism. Really, there is such a thing. <laughs> uh, and I think you added in evangelicalism. Why would I want to reject my beautiful Catholic boyhood, you know? I love the title of Carol Hauslander's book that I begin with, A Rocking Horse Catholic. Uh, she already in the 30s recognized that you got to go back and forth on this rocking horse, which gives away. Carol Hauslander had a, a non-dual mind, although she would have never used that term in the 1930s, I guess. So um, I have a positive early experience of Christianity to hold me, to hearken back to. I don't need to react against it, even though by today's criteria, I'm going to use a harsh word. So much of it was garbage. <laughs> but that's only by today's criteria. Uh -huh. yeah. um, 
so much of it was, in effect, anti-Protestant, very white bourgeois, uh, not upper-class bourgeois, but lower-class bourgeois, and nevertheless the same. So, uh, but that's not fair to judge the past which worked for you as a little 10-year-old boy by what I know now at 76. It's, and, and so to accept myself and my worldview now does demand conscious non-dual perception. Mm -hmm. But I didn't need non-dual perception. Now, that's not true anymore. You who were born into disorder, born into criticism, dismissal, chaos, and cynicism, I, I, I'm still not sure how it's going to play out with all of you. Because where do you learn non-dual consciousness when there's so much not to forgive or that seems unworthy of forgiveness or has to be named, has to be blamed? So I think it's going to be a harder path. Now, again, you had good families and a good beginning. But the amount of young people today who are growing up in chaos and total cynicism from both parents, wow, I don't know. I don't know because what I usually find them doing is they are so desperate for order by the age of 30 that they manufacture order and re revolve their whole world around one thing, like tattoos. <laughs> I'm not against tattoos, but I'd I, I meet people in the jail, that's all they could talk about. Mm. That was their frame of reference. You, if you do not discover true transcendence, you will become transcendental about something that isn't transcendent. Our, uh, we have a member on our staff who says his father is just obsessed with guns, collecting them, naming them, using them, <laughs> comparing his guns to other people's guns. Is that the meaning of life? You will create a center point. You will if you don't find a real center point. You have to do it for mental coherence or you go crazy with your bobbing mind. Uh, so that's why I thank God for showing herself to me uh, that I was given a, a transcendent reference point that is worthy of the name, that is really transcendent and not just guns or tattoos or, or the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Let's be honest, that is, that's the dueling religion in America today. It's not Catholic Protestant, it's Republican Democrat. And people hold on to those political labels that are constantly in flux with the rigidity that we used to be Catholic or Protestant, which was equally stupid. But uh, the, the dualistic mind will always refine itself refine itself, to give itself false comfort on one side. Yeah, wow. Mm. Yeah, darn it. Such a small North Star. Compared Such to a small North Star. Yeah. yeah. Very good, yeah. I want to have you read a passage, if I can Where find it. In this let book. me read it. So it's this passage right here. Um, okay. If you just read 
that section. All right, this is on page 206. Frankly, a new humility is emerging in Christianity as we begin to recognize our many major mistakes in the past, especially our tragic treatment of indigenous people in almost all the nations that Christians colonized. And that is not an exaggeration. There's no European country that can say we didn't do it. <laughs> they all did it. Along with our silence about and full complicity with slavery. Slavery. Talk about the ultimate I-it relationship. Right. You, you know there's no contemplation left when you have slaveholder religion. Destructive consumerism, apartheid, white privilege, the devastation of the planet itself, homophobia, classism, and of course the Holocaust. You know, as a German, I always take note of the Holocaust because this is my ethnic race. And if you've ever been to Germany, there's beautiful churches in every town. And there's Lutheran academies and Catholic seminaries in every other town. And yet twice in a 50-year period. <laughs> I don't even need to say it. It's, and they know this. How could Christianity be so wrong? I'm preaching now. I'm sorry. No, it's Our, good. Back to the paragraph. Our dualistic logic allowed us to justify almost anything the corporate ego desired. If the corporate ego wanted Germany to rule the world, forget about Jesus. Right? Now we are a little less arrogant about our ability to understand, much less to actually live this one true religion of ours. That's the phrase we grew up with. Were you the one true religion? That was a Catholic phrase. I Basically, guess. the Baptists were the one true oh, you religion. Were the <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought my little Swedish covenant denomination was the one true religion. Yes, yeah. Right. And the thing is, it was not one. It was partial mm -hmm. in all three cases. Right. The way that word one was used by the early fathers meant unitive of the whole. Catholic, in that sense. Our critics are not about to let us forget our past mistakes. So we're stuck with them forever. Mm -hmm. And anybody can Google, anybody can read a history book. The harsh judgments of humanity against the actual performance of Christianity are with us for the rest of history. Mm -hmm. Oh, my heart just sinks. Because I don't want to have to be an apologist mm -hmm. the rest of history. I want to get on to the positive visionary mes message, you know. But I know a lot of young Catholic priests who almost their most exciting course in the seminary is apology, Catholic apologetics. Mm -hmm. It's from the first word. It's a defensive posture and uh, ending up being a very offensive posture. Mm -hmm why we Catholics alone are the one true church. All people need to do is Google, and they will know what really seems to have happened. So now we have no choice about integrating the shadow. We have mm. no choice. But that, it, to me, is um, it's so refreshing, that humility that you're describing there, to look at the whole and say, yeah, we've really 
you know, mm. misinterpreted our own uh, heritage of our own, you know, our our founding teacher, Jesus. We've really screwed this really? up in a lot of different ways. And Wonder. your your ability to name our kind of collective complicity in yes. that. That's a good word. Is is so refreshing. And, and I, I want to know, how does... Con- how does contemplation help create the space for us to both see uh, our suffering, the collective suffering, that our our role in it, and still the hope at the same time of moving forward as you're naming? What's well, taken away from you in the contemplative mind is the need to blame, hmm. the need to accuse. I'm sure you've been told the very word Satan means the accuser. When you don't need to scapegoat and to find out who the bad guys are and to pretend you have localized evil, that's the illusion. I have localized evil, you know, and it's whatever. Like the Taliban are saying, it's soft Islam. Soft Islam is the problem. So in the name of our hard interpretation of Islam, we're going to destroy one after the other Islamic city. It's just, talk about being counterproductive to your own people. It just gets stupider and stupider. I don't think that's a word. But once you don't need to blame, once you don't need to scapegoat and localize evil elsewhere, I can't exaggerate what a freedom that is. It's, it's an entirely different mind when you don't even need to do it with the car in front of you that is going too slow or whatever it is. And I'm not saying I don't get upset at such things too, but there are people who really get upset at it, you know? Almost ram you because you're not going fast enough. There's the need for uh, for my inner anger to be expressed, but it never occurs to them that I in my slow car didn't, Maybe I occasioned the anger, but I didn't cause it. Mm. You were an angry person before you pulled up right behind my car. And then I brought it out of you. That's what uh, the the nonviolent teachers like Gandhi and Martin Luther King really brought to human awareness and why they would do provocative things in Alabama and Mississippi to reveal what was already in Alabama and Mississippi before they came. But non-seeing people blame them for it. You you caused the violence. No, I I provoked it. Oh, God. Why can't people see that? It's a seeing that seems to be a gift from God to recognize the hidden nature of sin, the hidden nature of evil in the egoic self, and in egoic structures, maybe yeah. even more so. Yeah. Well, I think you're naming it. It's that we don't like to see it in ourselves. We don't want to see it in ourselves. I don't. And I so, want to be a good boy. I'm right. a one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I appreciate that the you know that passage and in this book the way you describe contemplation as what frees us, frees us, frees us to actually see our part, our complicity. We are part of this great system. We, we can't scapegoat anymore. We have to own it so mm. that we can become free of it. Yes. And that, that participatory um, liberation is, 
is so exciting. Well, it is. If we would have seen the life of Jesus and the cross in particular as God's giant act of absolute solidarity with the human situation, hold on to that word solidarity, huh? then it's just as you said. It, it's not anything else than agreeing to be in solidarity with the evil of the world, with the suffering of the world, instead of seeking a pure pedestal of superiority. And that's what all Christianity seemed to think it needed to do. And you still see it in the arguments of politicians, each trying to find their moral high ground by different criteria but both wanting to be pure and perfect when you and I both know they're not. Mm -hmm. You're fighting a futile game that, that you are not complicit in the evil of America, but it's only the Democrats who are. You just want to say, oh, stop it. Just, that's really stupidity. Mm -hmm. Or the Republicans, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, I'm going to jump here, Richard, to uh, what you teach at the Living School for Action and Contemplation, our flagship program here, of what you teach students during their first kind of on-site intensive with you during their first year, which you call um, your methodology. Um, can you give a kind of an... Methodology? Is that what you Yeah, said? your methodology, methodology, sorry, of experience, yeah. scripture, and tradition. Can you just give like a brief, oh, why, yeah, why is it so to. important for uh, folks to understand as they begin this work uh, on this resurrection journey. Yeah, this is what I start with the very first day. And what is our methodology? By what authority does Richard say the things he says? <laughs> Who do you think you are? A man of <laughs> minimal intelligence in the United States of America, white privileged cleric, you know? Unless I can know that what I'm saying is not my own, not my own, but I am communicating from a larger lineage that was punctuated again and again and again. Now that's what we call the perennial tradition. So the words that were fought about so much in Christian history were scripture or tradition, endlessly. And of course, good old Luther comes along sola, Scriptura, only scripture. And we good Catholics fought him back and in effect said only tradition. What we have done in the past is the way it always will and always should be and so forth, you know. That became the usual law of two, endless argument that goes nowhere. And the evangelicals dug their heels more into sola scriptura, which created, frankly, modern fundamentalism. Because if you think you can only prove things by a line from the Bible, your bandwidth of available authority and source for truth is so narrow. It's just, my God, you're going to create anti-intellectual people. I don't know what else to say. Unthinking people. By the same token, if you Catholics keep thinking tradition is the way you did it in Portugal, uh, or the way you did it in, in the Netherlands uh, when you were growing up in the 1940s. That's not tradition. That's custom. Mm. And we uh, confuse custom with tradition. That was our Catholic sin. 
So what neither group recognized, and this might be the important insight that the students almost just seem to nod whenever I say it, is that neither the Catholic school or the Protestant school recognized that they were using scripture and using tradition through their personal experience, but didn't have the honesty or the tools to recognize that. You know? The filters to recognize. Okay, you're saying sola scriptura, but it's through the Spanish culture's interpretation of, of scripture or whatever culture it might be. So that's why I call it the tricycle, our methodology. And I deliberately, intentionally, I hope correctly, make experience the front wheel of the tricycle. Because experience is going to be what you rely on anyway. And let's start admitting it. Let's start being honest about it, that we interpret scripture, we interpret tradition through our limited cultural, intellectual, psychological personality. What else can you do? And God is humble enough to deal with that. So um, I, can, I can almost feel the relief in the room when you say that to students. But see, I've got to emphasize, we weren't taught that. We Catholics were told not to trust our experience, even though we did anyway, but to trust the Pope's experience, or the bishop, or the priest. It was all top-down. Protestants, uh, starting strongly with Luther, when you say sola scriptura, that's a basis for dualistic thinking. You're being taught dualistic. Don't look at tradition. There is no perennial tradition. There's only the isolated believer with his little Bible. And so there's some truth that, the, not an entire truth, but that Protestantism was the birth of individualism because I didn't need community. All I needed was me and my Bible and my sola scriptura text. So once we have the tools, as we do now, for allowing you to filter, to process your own experience by things like spiritual direction, therapy, psychology, spiral dynamics, the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs personality profile. I mean, you all have 10 filters by which you can say, okay, maybe this isn't pure experience. This is my experience. Huh? Uh, now we can put experience back on the front wheel. Then I find they can well carry, our experience filtered can well carry scripture and tradition. And the three in the long run, the three wheels balance, check out, uh, you know, self-correct one another. And I think it gives you a very good basis for truth, spiritual truth. I'm not talking about medical truth. And that's a distinction we didn't often make. Spiritual truth, all right? That spiritual truth, if it's not just yours and your, your filter is critiqued, it is constantly in dialogue with the Judeo-Christian scriptures, uh, and also honest enough about the whole tradition. So you've been in the class, well, both of you have, where I give you that diagram of the river. And a lot of people have never seen the whole river. 
all I saw was the little Calvinist reform in, you know, the 16th century, which was good, but it's too small. Mm. It's too small a pond. It's not the big ocean. So that doesn't throw out Calvinism or Lutheranism or Catholicism, for that matter. But what we Catholics didn't have the honesty to recognize is that we were only half. <laughs> that we had excommunicated the Eastern Church. So all of us made the same mistake. We substituted our part for the whole. Mm. Now in sympathy, they didn't have access to the whole the way we do today. So I can't hate them and think they were all stupid. They didn't have Google. <laughs> but that's it's interesting two points one is that we do tend to substitute the part for the whole in other we words do. we yeah. project our we experience or our lens yeah. onto the whole thing the other thing that i appreciate about um your methodology methodology richard is that it's a tricycle is in motion it's Very in good. motion so, saying that. so we're evolving yeah. so the big t tradition you know we're always gaining greater and greater perspective on what that big T tradition yes, is. Yes, yes. And so um, one of the things that you bring up in this book is the work of Barbara Holmes, oh. uh, who we love yeah. so much here at the center. We're so grateful for. Um, but how her work elucidates contemplation with a greater perspective, right, than we're, we're typically used to in our kind of white ethnocentric focus. Mm. And she talks about contemplation as including moaning and singing and crisis contemplation. And so she's she's bringing us into a, a bigger picture, a bigger tea tradition. How has she impacted you and your own views mm. of, of contemplation? I think the work of Barbara Holmes has been one of the greater breakthroughs in the evolution of teaching here at CAC. And it was you, Paul, who gave me the book. I think you, you put it on my desk. Thank you. Because uh, I hadn't heard of Barbara. Uh, but as soon as I began to read it, I said, this is true. This is what I'm trying to say in my own feeble way by great love and great suffering. And now she brings it to an ethnic foundation that I suddenly could see that the, our definition of contemplation was too monastic, was too white, celibate, European, and too Buddhist. Not to put down any of those groups, mm -hmm. um, but to have a black woman from the African experience you know, when this has often hit me over the years, hit me again when I taught in Africa. I love to have mass in these little African churches where the whole thing starts with everybody marching up the aisle in perfect symmetry. How did they do? We, we could not do it. And the whole mass goes on. When one starts moving, they all move together. Do you see how we've got a collective we already? Uh, shown in their body. And, and so dancing, uh, moaning in the slave hold, ships coming across the middle passage where they couldn't even understand one another's language because they were from different tribes. Can you imagine the torture of that? Chained for weeks. I don't know if they force fed them or if they fed them at all. 
We know many died. But what we're told in historical accounts is they began to moan together. God, collective, collective suffering. This is the image of the cross in space and time. God was in solidarity with that. And they were in solidarity with God. As soon as the eye became a we, the eye is too small to know God. So anything that moves you to a we is the beginnings of contemplation. And I think that's what Barbara Holmes is teaching, giving it the name of crisis contemplation, that often it takes a crisis to recognize your radical solidarity with your family, with your partner, with your children, with whatever it might be. So she's been a great gift. to our, And the CAC, if I dare say it, is in a unique position to integrate this teaching because we're not monastic-based. And as a Franciscan, I say, my God, this is why Francis said, don't speak to me of Benedict. He wasn't against the Benedictines, but he knew that was too ordered a model. It was too based on order, and Francis could deal with disorder. So he sent us into the streets of the city and the wilds of nature. And those were our monasteries, the streets of the city and the wilds of nature. So I quickly, I don't mean to pull everything into my ambit, but um, I could see crisis contemplation is frankly much more of the Franciscan tradition. Um, so I just bought it without any hesitation. Then when I met Barbara herself, and was able to have a little, uh, more than a little, private time sharing together, what I could easily discern was a woman who was radically God-centered. Mm-hmm. It was not intellectual belief. Uh, she knew God. Mm-hmm. As arrogant as that sounds, she knew oh, God. It's that, it's that yeah. elder energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and well, the other course. marker that I think is interesting about how you frame contemplation here at the center and also in the book is that it's incarnate. Mm-hmm, in other words, mm-hmm. it's embodied. You can, you can really, um, you can not just see it, but you can feel it in the energy of a person for whom this is a lifelong pursuit. Yeah. Richard, one of the things you bring up in this chapter is uh, that death that we're not speaking of death avoided, but death transformed, and yeah. the practice of dying before you die. That's pivotal. And this has been such a big part of my own contemplative journey, is just uh, the gratitude that can arise for life when I ponder my own death, that this is uh, this is not a dress rehearsal for anything. This is, this is it, right? Mm-hmm. How has um, that practice of dying before you die what does that look like for you, and what does that bring into your own sense of uh, embodiment and participation in mystery? You know, any kind of dying is never invited in. First of all, it's forced on you. You know what I can think of as a little boy just hating to get up on a winter morning and go to school? Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Oh, why well, do I have to do this? And I was a good little boy, but I still, once you're under the covers and it's cold. And, uh, but I realize now that little, what was first imposed by law, you have to get up, you have to go to school. Okay, 
I didn't think about God very much, but law is probably the first imposition of death upon you. No, you must do this for your sisters and brothers, for your mommy and daddy. Okay, uh, I'll do it to conform and to keep from punishment. But then, um, oh gosh, when does it morph into recognizing that this ability to let go of your own willfulness, to let go of your own need. I can remember, you know, I went to the seminary already at 14. It's a bunch of strong-willed, macho, 14-year-old boys. I wasn't macho, but a lot of them were. Uh, all being very willful and wanting to win and wanting to be the smartest boy in class. That then I just in inkling ways began to recognize the only way community is ever going to happen in this place is I have to decide real early not to always have my way or not to always be right or not to always be first. So it morphed a little farther into choicefulness, into consciousness. So, uh, then I, when I was pastor of the Lake Community in Cincinnati, the New Jerusalem, uh, I mean, I spent half of most working days just doing counseling, marriage counseling, counseling about all the problems young people have. Uh, and it struck me that almost all the problems were the self wanting to force itself on the situation, on the marriage, on another person. Uh, so what I learned, I hope those are good examples, that in each case it was a letting go of, of the way I saw it, the way I preferred it, the way I wanted it, to allow the perspective of another person. But every time, and still to this day, that feels like dying. It feels unfair. Dang it, why do I have to give up? <laughs> it, it feels almost wrong. Well, I'm a person. I have rights too. And if you give in to those voices too quickly, you'll never surrender your ego boundaries. Yes, there is a self that has a right to protect itself, but don't start with that all the time, you know, because she's a self too. <laughs> and uh, even little children are a self. And uh, that's the beautiful thing about parents like you. I think for the first time in history, we have parents who've been able to recognize that child has a selfhood that I don't have the right to manipulate. You understand? Mm. <laughs> that I don't have the right to force. What a evolution of consciousness that is, that you don't own your children. Yes, I do. I created them. Well, not really. You just waited for nine months, and God created them and gave them to you. I know that's a religious way of talking, but just know that all letting go will always feel like dying. Now, once you see that the practice, in fact, widens your field, widens the capacity for communion and community, it's much easier for me to trust at my age now. I mean, to bring it home, 
as you know, I'm called the founder of this place, but I really have very little to say about it. And uh, that's fine. That's as it should be. And there are things that are happening. It's just I just have to look the other way. I just have to bite my tongue. What? You know, it's just, it's so different than my worldview would have once said. Uh, but I've learned, and I mean this sincerely, that by getting out of the way and biting your tongue and not assuming your perspective is the best, I've learned so much by not insisting on my way. So, um, those are just silly, but I think real examples of dying before you die. Yeah. But you do have to do it enough to see that it, it's actually to your advantage and to the advantage of the group. Whether it's a bigger self each time. Now that's what makes it easy for me to trust resurrection. That if I can do that on my final day of life, there's gonna be a bigger self emerging. I now can believe that experientially. Could you just, in closing, read... Um, oh, the uh, end of the book, huh? Well, the sort of sort end of, of the book. You yeah. have a couple great yeah. endings in there. <laughs> yes. I am saying that the way things work and Christ are one and the same thing. This is not a religion to be either fervently joined or angrily rejected. It's a train ride already in motion. The tracks are visible everywhere. Oh, thank you for letting me write that, God. I mean, I, I agree with it even more as I read it. You can be a willing and happy traveler or not. It's just a choice, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you, Richard. For opening to that, yeah. As we close, the uh, um, final question I wanted to ask is, where have you seen Christ in the way things work this week? This week, where have I seen Christ in the way things work? Hmm. First things that come to mind are stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? Um, You know, about two years ago, I began to accept that doctors were apparently going to be a regular part of my life. Uh, I used to just hate my yearly physical. Oh, God, got to do my yearly physical again. Now it's every other week, another doctor. Uh, once I can accept the luxury that I even have to go to a doctor. And how many people in Asia and Africa and Latin America have all the diseases I have, but don't have a doctor? I was able to, ex uh, now I don't fight going to the doctor, or resent it, or even resist it. Now, what I'm trying to describe is an inner experience of death and resurrection. Uh, uh, what I once resented is now become okay. It's the way things work. This, this is the way your life has unfolded. Now you, almost every other week you have to go to a doctor 
for something and I'm getting to know them personally and they're getting to know me and the nurses and it's all becoming sort of personal, another community uh, that's really rather sweet. <laughs> uh, in fact, the, when I did two days ago to the dermatologist to take these spots off my head, uh, the nurse who's leading me in, she says, we just love your voicemail. I said, how do you know who I am? She says, well, we all joke about your voicemail. <laughs> I mean, I guess I say something real happy. Uh, this is Richard Rohr. I, I don't know. She says, no one else sounds as happy in their voicemail as you do. <laughs> it's just neat to see how you can create community wherever you go if you move beyond this formality to those little personal things, you know? So doctors in the world of hospitals and doctor's offices uh, are a new resurrection in my life. Mm -hmm. So who am I to complain? It's just luxury upon luxury, gift upon gift, grace upon grace, even all my health problems. So uh, did that respond to your question? It did. Okay. Thank you, Richard. You're welcome. Thank you. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to learn about these ideas in more depth, check out the Universal Christ Resource Collection at universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.